welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Tom, and hello, everyone listening. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, Ben. I do enjoy this time of year. It feels like we've got a change in the seasons. Spring is upon us, and we've had all the fun of April Fool's. Uh, I, I did have an April Fool's joke about chemistry for you, Ben. Uh, I was worried it Go wouldn't get a reaction. I was worried it wouldn't get a reaction. <laughs> um, I was, I was, in fact, I was going to tell you a time traveling joke about April Fool's Day, but you didn't like it, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, enough with the ridiculous jokes. How are you doing? Well, very well. I, I've been uh, yesterday driving through the lovely Surrey countryside, and I understand we're going to be talking later about how problematic the countryside might be. Um, but no, uh, wonderful. I've um, I've just finished reading a very interesting book, and I think I say that every week. Uh, it, it certainly feels like it. And I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole. So I, the book I read was The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, which is uh, is about a detective who's been hospitalised. And to fill his uh, his period recuperating, he decides to solve the mystery of the princes in the tower. And so I've gone down this sort of conspiracy theory rabbit hole and, and have been completely convinced that Richard III is innocent. And it got me wondering if he's the only historical figure with an active campaign of people trying to rehabilitate him. And I think he might be. I think he might be a completely unique individual. Because he was um, his complete villain in Shakespeare. And I can't yes. remember whether in Richard III we see the princes in the tower. I think we do. And I think they get hauled off at some point. Uh, but you reckon they're innocent? Yes. And I don't want... I, the book was written in the 1950s. So, um, I, but, but still, I don't want to spoil it if you've not read it. It's absolutely compelling. Um, <laughs> but I just... I, I, was trying, so I was trying to think of another historical figure where there are people trying to rehabilitate rather than condemn his memory. The, the free speech union is too busy trying to save real living people from being uh, cancelled. So we, we don't have the time, alas, to, to save long dead historical figures from being no, cancelled we as well. And, but, and I don't think we've got the time to rehabilitate the, uh, Richard III, sadly. But you can, get, you can go and look at the work of History Reclaimed, is a very interesting group um, who, who, do that, who do that sort of work. Um, so go and check them out. And quite a lot of people involved in the Free Speech Union are involved in that as well. Anyway, April Fool's Day. Yeah, we need to talk about April Fool's Day. Uh, it seems that April Fool's Day is becoming blander and blander, I think. It seems to me that we've got um, news news folks and businesses really more and more worried about the pranks that they're willing to do on April Fool's Day, which is a shame. I find it one of the one of the nice distractions at this time of year to try and see if I can spot the April Fool's joke. And so I was actually going to test you, Ben, with a few uh, April Fool's because you won't be surprised that we have so many things in the news nowadays. You wouldn't know the difference between what's a real April Fool's joke and what is, um, what is not. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of a test, Ben, um, okay. and see if you can spot what's an April Fool's and what's not an April Fool's. So what do you think? Are you, are you game? I am. I'm ready. Okay, here's the first one. So do you hate small talk on flights? Get ready to say shh the next time you're airborne because Kayak, the world's leading travel search engine, has launched a new silent flights feature to help passengers avoid talkative seatmates. And there are two options when you're buying your ticket. Two tick boxes, either no phone call zone or no small talk. Now, is that an April Fool's or is that not an April Fool's? I think that's quite a good idea. So I think if, the, if that's not <laughs> an April Fool's, 
I think that's an opportunity for somebody. I um, I think it's I think it's not real though. I think that's an April Fool's. Ah, you're absolutely right. That was an April uh, Fool's. That was an April Fool's from a little earlier on. So here we go. Here's the second one. UK's first intersex inclusive pride train has been launched by Southwestern Railway. The rail operator launched the train to show its support and solidarity with its LGBTQIA plus customers, colleagues, and community. Is that an April Fool's? Did did the train run on time? Because if if it did run on time, then that's an April Fool's because that's utterly impossible. It's a class four 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 train, and it doesn't tell me here whether or not it ran on tra- when it ran on time. I think having walked through through the streets of Oxford recently with um, multicoloured zebra crossings all over the place, I think we've reached the point where that's real. Uh, it's real. It's real, Ben. You're right. You're doing well. That's two out of two. Um, Not bad. All right. Here we go. Durham City announced as the newest Formula One street circuit. Formula One has announced that Durham City will be the site of the newest Formula One street circuit in a move that will see a second British race for the first time since 1993. And it will go through the cobbled streets of Durham. Is that an April Fool or is that actually going to happen? Reported in the Palatinate, the uh, official student newspaper of Durham. That must surely be an April Fool's. That is an April Fool. Am I, am I pronouncing that right as well, Ben? How do you pronounce the student newspaper? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. There we go. Tell me if I'm not. We'll find out. A Durham student can, we will can find correct out. if that wrong. And it's the last one now. Hate crime experts to rule whether English countryside harbours rural racism. The English countryside will be studied by hate crime experts to establish whether it harbours rural racism. Is that an April Fool or is that true? Well, alas, I I know because I read last <laughs> week about this commission or this investigation or whatever it is that, that's going to be carrying out this inquiry into whether trees are racist or whatever it is they're working on. So I, I'm afraid that is real. Um, and I, I, I read yeah. that story last week and I just thought there's absolutely no prospect that this commission or body or whatever it is, is going to come to the conclusion that there isn't endemic, quote unquote, <laughs> institutional racism. Um, across the country. I mean, there's just no possibility that they can come to any other conclusion. Um, but it, it it got me thinking about um, an event that's now, I think, fairly well known, the Battle of Bamber Bridge, uh, which is a, a village in the north of England. And basically there was um, there actually shots fired. It was a, it was a small-scale battle in the Second World War between uh, American military police and a group of African-American soldiers who had been on the receiving end of, uh, you know, segregation and very sustained racism and all the rest of it um but mm. the point is the the villagers at bamba bridge were entirely on the side of the african-american soldiers and there are instances of um of people for instance putting black only signs up in pubs because they were so opposed to the idea that american soldiers would come to britain and then be segregated so i i think the idea that because the countryside is is still largely overwhelmingly white that it it's axiomatic that it therefore must be racist um is ludicrous but of course that's the finding that that, that will be made because you, ha- you that, that's the that's the institutional view that everybody has now the money has been given to do the research you're absolutely right and it probably would would, would be retracted pretty quickly a, a little bit like um uh, the report into institutional racism and i can't remember exactly who wrote it but 
it was the wrong it was the wrong conclusion and therefore it was essentially silenced yeah that's right it's just this this strange situation where it's very fashionable to say oh yeah we're institutionally racist and there's there's no hope for reforming us uh it's really bizarre and of course we see it the free speech union i think particularly in 2020 the year we were founded an absolute inundation of of cases of of people who were just pushing back against that and were saying things like well actually no i don't think we are institutionally racist uh or dissenting from the organization black lives matters so they were saying well i completely believe in racial equality i just don't agree with this particular approach to it and i think it's very divisive and so on but anyway ben you i think you i think you got four out of four um and i i i uh I, I'm not surprised because you see all these things all the time, but it is becoming harder and harder to spot what is and what isn't an April Fool's. Um, but sadly, our next item is not an April Fool's because it's very much a hot potato in Parliament. Ben, do you want to take us through the Worker Protection Bill? I, I absolutely do not want to do that, Tom. It's it's a horrendous <laughs> piece of legislation. That not, is, I want, is I want you to go through it by clause by clause, Ben. well you may have seen this um on sunday morning in the telegraph and and probably coughed up your cornflakes if if you did um so this is a piece of legislation that's been proposed by uh two liberal democrats and has been picked up by the government sort of waved through parliament on a friday um and as yet has not received the scrutiny that it that it needs and it's going to expand the provisions of the equality act to get us to a position where employers have to protect their employees from what's called third-party harassment. Now, what that means in practice is if you are a pub landlord and your bar staff overhear two customers having a conversation that the staff perceive as being sexist or transphobic or so on, um, that the employee can sue their boss. They can sue their employer because it is this concept of third-party harassment. And so it's going to dramatically expand the duties of employers under the Equality Act. And so this is going to create situations where you go into a pub and the pub is so worried about being sued by its employees that you might have to sign a code of conduct. You might have to agree not to discuss certain topics. Because Mm. if you do, bar staff can say, well, my employer hasn't taken steps to prevent me from being harassed. And I think there's a everyone has a common sense idea of what harassment actually means. Nobody wants to see actual harassment in workplaces. So that's not the issue, but it's expanding the definition of harassment beyond all sense and reason. So we're really worried about it, and we've been very active, uh, particularly in the last three or four weeks, uh, trying to get this piece of legislation scrutinised. As I said, it's basically just been waved through so far. Um, and we're hoping there will be an opportunity uh, for the Commons to debate the bill. So it's called the Workers' Protection Bill. And you can, as I said, you can read the Telegraph about it. We've been covering it in our newsletters as well. And and it was initially because it was trying to k- kick back against sexual harassment of employees, which of course is makes perfect sense and i don't think at any point the free speech union is is worried about that it's the fact it's all types of harassment and and the examples just keep coming don't they and it, things like uh, doctors and nurses could sue the nhs if a patient verbally abuses them or the football match chance or as you say someone down the dog and duck upsets the barmaid um if anything is based any of that sort of banter 
in some way pulls in a protected characteristic, then that employee can suddenly sue their employer, where the employer really has very little control. And I think I heard it being described over the weekend in some of the reports in the newspaper, that if this goes through, workplaces and and public places or, uh, or, or pubs and places like that will have to be run like a police state. So it's quite terrifying, really. How, how did we get here, Ben? Well, you're, you're going to end up with banter bouncers on the doors of pubs and, and <laughs> code of conduct and all the rest. It, it's just going to be, it's going to be nightmarish. Um, and I think that the last embers of free speech that exist in normal day-to-day life in Britain are about to be stamped out by this bill. Mm. Um, so it's, it's terribly troubling. Um, in terms of, of how we got here, I think it's, it's entirely motivated by wanting to stop harassment, which which sounds perfectly reasonable, particularly when you know it's sexual harassment. Um, but the secondary consequences of this legislation, the fact that it's drawn so broadly, um, it goes far beyond that stated objective. And I, I think it's something we need to be concerned about, particularly because lots of the 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 the, the joyless culture in workplaces, the humorless culture in workplaces that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks on this podcast that I think people are finding very miserable, that's going to be expanded beyond your workplace, but into social settings. So you can't even escape from it in the evenings or at the weekend. And it's going to be this pervasive um, fear on the part of employers if you're running a business. You're going to be so worried about one of your staff suing you that you're going to impose really onerous restrictions on your you know the patrons of your pub or whatever your business is um yeah. and we we're just going to see the spread of this stifling atmosphere yeah. um so I, I think the the dangers of this can't be overstated i'm afraid and of course i think one of the other reasons that we got here was because the times when we had the first reading and the second reading uh we were having a change of guard at number 10 in, interestingly, something I hadn't realised, the first and the second reading when they happened, the first was Boris Johnson's leaving and the second was Liz Truss leaving. And of course, that was a time of upheaval, change, and this just got missed. But it sailed through the Commons um, uh, twice. So it's we've got one last chance, I think, now to, to make a difference and, and to stop this from coming in because it will, as you say, absolutely stifle free speech in situations where in a free society um uh, it's it, we can't really describe ourselves as that anymore i think if this happens well i'd say right right to your mp if you're listening to this and you don't like the sound of this at all uh right to a member of parliament and i mm. think what's happened is it, it it snuck through because it sounds so non-contentious it sounds completely reasonable um which is a feature there has not been... it? It, it's a feature of a lot of these things is that uh, a lot of these laws that have snuck through or sneaked through s- seems from reasonable, maybe come from a good place a lot of the time as well. But it's these these side effects that are actually uh, terrible and and kill off so much of of what it means to be living in a free society and having free speech. So, yeah, we absolutely we, we will we will be um, asking our supporters and our members to. To, to write to their MPs again once once we get to the next stage, but we're we're we're, we're waiting for that next stage at the moment. Um, but that brings us on to I'm um, talking about uh, 
stifling of, of, of free speech and uh, the sorts of things that we see on a day-to-day basis, and particularly you, Ben, see on a day-to-day basis in the casework, brings us on to uh, a fundraiser that we are also very heavily engaged in a, on um, crowd justice. Dr. Lauro Favaro, um, who is she? Uh, she's an academic who's been researching the silencing, the discrimination, and the harassment of female academics who raise questions about gender identity theory. And follow, she wrote a piece in 2022 in the Times Higher Education um, and uh, newspaper. And as a result of that, there were some complaints made to City University, which is her institution, alleging that she had been unethical during her research. In actual fact, following an investigation, no ethical wrongdoing was found. But what happened is that Dr. Laura Favaro was frozen out of her research at City, leading to the suspension of her research and withdrawal. She actually had she had the access to her own data withdrawn. And she's heard it said that City considers her research data to be dangerous. Um, and and the several things to think about here, sort of or draw out here. First of all, she herself, if you go to the Crowd Justice Fundraiser link, which is um, uh, at, under crowdjustice.com, you can just search for uh, Dr. Lara Favaro. Um, it's had a huge impact on her well-being. She's been signed off sick twice for stress, anxiety, and depression. Um, and also, I think a really important point, I'd be interested in what you think about this, Ben. Um, she's just starting out in her career, and I think this is a really Im- sort of important aspect of this. This is not someone who's well established. She was doing sort of postdoctoral research, and this happened at that stage of her career, and that that is also, I think, quite worrying and a quite worrying element of this. I think it's a demonstration again of how we've got to a position where you only really have free speech in modern Britain if you're retired or independently very wealthy and you don't have to rely on the goodwill of your employer. Um, and I, I think particularly for early career academics like Laura, so we've been helping her for, for some time dealing with this situation. Um, and I'm pleased to say her, her crowdfunder seems to have gone quite well since it was launched over the weekend. Yeah. But the point is, if you're in a situation where you're trying to establish yourself in your chosen profession, it's already very difficult to get funding in academia anyway. Those those postdoctoral placements are highly competitive. And if you're in that situation, and then on top of all of that stress and all the stress of normal you know, day-to-day family life and all the rest of it, you have an accusation that your research uh, is in some way dangerous or unethical or harmful. And actually... I digress, but that's such a ludicrous charge because what she did, in fact, was so commendable. She spoke to people with all sorts of different perspectives on the debate about um, trans ideology, women's spaces, and so on, um, and wanted to uh, to report on the state of that conversation and how that debate was being conducted or not, how it was being suppressed. Um, and, of course, she found that that suppression was coming from one side Um, and that's what we see in our work at the free speech union every week and it's another Um, case of one of those ironies isn't it ben that irony of she's actually studying the harassment of female academics who raise questions about gender identity theory as a result of which her research is being shut down it's a bit like last week um rather different situation when posey parker was was at a let women speak 
rally and she was shut down and women weren't allowed to speak. Um, there's all these ironies cut through this about what people are are, are not allowed to do um, when the, the subject at hand is about talking about what people are not allowed to do. Um, so and it's, it's, it's revealing, Tom, isn't it, how threatening it is to the people mm. who are trying to shut down the debate and discussion that even somebody like Laura just writing and researching about what's happened to the victims of mm. the militant wing of the of, 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 of trans rights campaigning, um, even just doing that sort of fact-finding is, is threatening and, and therefore enough. has to be shut down. Um, but the huge stress you're placed on, I mean, if you, if you go under an investigation that can last for months and months and months and your whole life feels like it's just suspended um, while that, that sort of proceeding is going on. Um, so if you're just tuning in for the first time, um, I work on the Free Speech Union's cases team. We have a legal team as well who are um, dedicated full time and then some to helping uh, members in situations like the one that uh, Laura has been in. Um, so if you're listening to this and need our assistance, you're welcome to contact us and we'll do everything we can to help you um, because we know what a huge pressure um, these situations are for people. And it's not just happening to the rich and powerful. It's, it's not just happening to uh, celebrities or famous people. It's, it's happening to people in all sorts of, of walks of life. And as we was just saying, uh, often very junior people who are least equipped to resist these sorts of assaults. Well, I pulled out some stats Ben, on, on what we've done at the Free Speech Union on this topic of gender and sex, most of which have been related to the transgender issue over the last three years. And, and, and in the latter part of 2020 and most of 21, so Q4 2020 to Q3 2021, about 16% of our cases related to gender and sex. Well, guess how much that went up to in uh, I won't I won't get you to guess because I've got the numbers right in front of me, but in essence a year later, so up to most of 2022 that went up to a third. So more than doubled the proportion of cases that we're looking at in relating relation to gender and sex. And in terms of the sort of the number of individuals who are at universities, either students or or academics, that's 20% of our cases. Um, because this, and, and that's slightly less than the gender sex proportion because actually people in workplaces, employees are also being this tripwire of the gender sex or transgender issue is also catching people in private institutions so or private business. So yeah, interesting that that's what we're seeing. I feel like it brings us back to the Tudors because it, it's almost like the, the, the changeover from a Catholic to Protestant, Protestant to Catholic monarch where you have a new religion arriving on the scene uh, ruthlessly suppressing dissent, or uh, in the in the case of uh, uh, of Queen Mary, uh, <laughs> Taking and returning and all, Vatican, all the Vatican, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it, it, we often talk, and, and many people have made comparisons between trans ideology and uh, religious fervor. Um, and I, I think that's another good example, and we have the data to prove it. This isn't just a sort of feeling that we have that people, in, you know, we, we deal with these cases every day. Um, well, I wonder, this I wonder brings... then, is, is our data dangerous? Is, is our data going to be deemed <laughs> to be too dangerous and it's going to be sort of s stolen away from us like it's been stolen away from the academics that, from, from Laura herself? Well, I, I think our data is so interesting because it completely, it completely vindicates those of us who've been saying that there's a huge free speech crisis um, in mm. Britain and indeed in, in the Western world more generally. Um, but in terms of getting clear empirical data, this brings us on to one of my pet peeves, which is the reporting of 
crimes, violent sexual crimes by biological males. And the way in which the BBC, other media organisations, refer to those biological males with she slash her pronouns to the extent that I would say they are disseminating a form of disinformation. Mm. And so there was one case, um, so this is a quote from The Mirror, a woman jailed for stabbing her partner after falsely imprisoning her and demanding her pin has been sent to a men's prison. And when you click through and look at the article, this Zara Jade is a man. Mm. Now, Mm. whether or not you think somebody can change their gender or not, that's up to you. But when you have media organisations, when you have the BBC, um, who are so concerned about the spread of disinformation online, they even have a disinformation reporter. When you have the BBC reporting in that way, that's so biased and so completely accepts the assumptions of a particular ideology and a particular view of these debates, um, how is that different from Mm. disinformation? It's so opaque, isn't it, Ben, as as well? Um, There is no doubt that I read these articles and I don't understand or or, or I can't work out um, what sort of person it is because the reporting, whether it's the BBC or or whichever outlet, jumps straight to, right, we we will call them whatever they want to be called by without really explaining, okay, well, is this a biological man? Is this a biological woman? And so, number one, it's it's totally opaque, and as you say, it is it it's misleading. It's for anyone who's not been in working in this area or talking about this area in the last five minutes or the last two years. It's happened so quickly, um, but also I think it excludes. It's extremely exclusive in terms of it excludes people from actually being in the conversation because they're too scared. I, I'm going to get all the pronouns wrong. I'm going to get really worried about how I talk about this person and so I can't and yet the topic itself is really really important we have to talk about these criminals how they're doing what they're doing and how we stop it happening in the future and if we can't be a part of that conversation that's very dangerous I think yeah and it's just completely baffling and you get so tangled up and it might be that sort of eight or nine paragraphs down there's an oblique mention to the fact that the uh, woman who's committed some awful sadistic violent crime um, is in fact a biological male, is a man. Um, mm. And that information, if it's present, is often often buried quite far down the running order. Um, and this has been an issue uh, last week with the Nashville school shooting where a, uh, I think lots of people were completely unclear about what the facts of that case were. So in, in the end, it turned out to be a female... Um, shooter who'd gone into this school who was reportedly transitioning uh, either socially or, or medically, I don't know, to to become male. Um, but the fact is you read these reports about, uh, about, about a transgender shooter and the pronouns are all over the place and you've got no idea actually what the basic facts of the case are. And it, it just seems to take... De- and this isn't just because the police are sort of working out what's going on. Of course, that's go- if, with, with, a, with a live investigation, there's always going to be some element of that. Um, but it's when, it's when the established facts are distorted and you know that you cannot trust what the reporting of this is saying. So when, when you first read transgender shooter, who's, who's referred to as she and her, the natural assumption, because you know the BBC and other organisations are, are spreading disinformation in this way... 
you know that those pronouns or you suspect that those pronouns will be unreliable. Mm. And so the mm. assumption is that it must in fact be a man. And in this case, it wasn't. But this shows the the effect, the cumulative effect of these organisations making themselves so untrustworthy. And I hate the word gaslighting but it because it's so, over, so overused. Um, mm. But if anything is gaslighting, if anything is spreading disinformation, <laughs> this must be it. And I think they've confused themselves, Ben, as well. I heard that a couple of media outlets kept on getting it wrong, whatever wrong means. They kept on getting it wrong. They had to send out corrections saying, oh, we said, you know, he, he, him, and it should have been she, her, or we said she, her, and it should have been he, him, or it should have been they. And they, they can't get out of their own way either. So not only are they gaslighting us, but they're confusing themselves at the same time. The conversation then becomes about getting the pronouns right and the yeah. corrections that need to go out from the news outlet. And then you forget what the actual thing was. And then you think about in Nashville, these are children who've been shot. You know, this is, this is a very, very serious news item. And yet it's becoming trivialized by a conversation about yeah. the pronouns of the shooter. And that and it, is, it, it, is wrong. Yeah. And it's made completely unintelligible by this sort of theological debate. Anyway, I'm sorry, we probably should have given a trigger warning before going into the, uh, <laughs> before vexing you all <laughs> so much with this absolutely infuriating uh, habit of, of, uh, of the media at the moment. And trigger warnings yeah. brings us on to our, our next topic. Uh, Tom. Yeah, our next topic, which is um, another newspaper article or a couple of newspaper article um, that the ex-Glasgow University careers chief uh, has, as she's called Linda Murdoch, has said that universities are turning students into snowflakes. It's reported in the Scottish Daily Express and the Times. And what this article was saying is that students are being taught to fear their own thoughts and feelings. And, and, and she believes that this, this actually stems from a recommendation that was made back in 2017 from Universities UK saying that all aspects of uni- university life should be supported, including mental health and well-being. And, it, you know, in principle, again, this comes back to what we were saying about at the beginning, again, about good intentions. Um, that doesn't sound wrong. And I, I certainly remember as a young student going into university and for the first time being away from home properly in hundreds of miles away from home as well. And yeah, I mean, my well-being, my mental health, I'm, you know, that was probably something that I needed to think about or but I had I had support and and that that's fine, but what happens is that the implementation of that becomes trigger. I mean, for example, last year, uh apparently an investigation by the Times found 1081 cases of trigger warnings in university courses across the UK. And also, two universities, Essex and Sussex, have admitted removing books from study lists for fear that they might trigger students. So, again, it's that sense of something that seems reasonable at the outset is taken to the nth degree and becomes utterly unreasonable. Um, I don't know what you think of this, Ben, but it reminds me of... I read The Coddling of the American Mind a couple of years ago. I don't know if you know that book. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, excellent. It, yeah, well, the, the idea that really struck me was that of anti-fragility. So obviously something can mm. be fragile, you can snap it and it breaks. But a child or a human being is fragile in a different way. If you 
try and bend them or, or kind of break them, they actually get stronger. If you don't put them into a stress situation or give them stresses, they become weaker. And I think that is how we grow up and how we we advance in, in life. We need to be exposed to stresses or we won't develop. Um, one of the phrases from the book was prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And these trigger warnings seem to me to be like, you know, preparing the road for the child. But at some point, that child's going to be on a real road in the real world out there where there are no trigger warnings. <laughs> and is there a difference, do you think, Tom, between a trigger warning and a content warning? Because a trigger warning is not just saying, this is quite distressing. It's saying, this is quite distressing and your mental health is going to suffer as a result. So I, I spent, so I, I did a history undergraduate degree um, and mm. spent quite a lot of that studying the Russian, Russian Revolution, Russian Civil War, Central and Eastern European history, um, which is obviously utterly blood-soaked and horrendous. Mm. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that lecturers would have said something like, you know, the ne- the picture on the next slide is going to be quite grim or the, the details of how the Russian imperial family are killed are, are quite harrowing. Um, now, I think that's fine because that's not saying um, this this is so upsetting that you will automatically have an adverse medical reaction to it. It's just saying that, that you're 18, 19, this is pretty upsetting. Um, it's pretty gruesome, but it happened and you need to know about it because lots of human history is blood-soaked and horrible and you shouldn't hide from it yeah so i think there i think there is a difference i totally agree with you and and i remember as a school at school if we were learning about the holocaust for example and there were going to be descriptions of what happened then our teacher would say this is going to be a a rough lesson guys get ready for it if you if you feel overwhelmed at any point, then you know feel free to get up and and, and leave um, because it's harrowing. Um, but it's really important that we do study this, and it's really important that you understand it um, and the broader but, context but of it. What's going on now? We've we've gone from that to the situation where it was reported a couple of months ago, where Aberdeen University are giving trigger warnings for Peter Pan, for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for the Railway Children. So that just. <laughs> I, I, what do you Scope say to cream. that? Can we can we find Scope anything cream. to say to that? I mean, it, it's just yeah. absolutely maddening, isn't it? And it's safetyism. So that's another thing that comes from that book. The, the Coddling of the American Mind was a great book. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, the right and that sense of you know, maybe. Well, to be honest, when I grew up, we didn't even have physical safety. I have to be honest. Uh, uh, most playgrounds were made of concrete, and it was you know surviving to five o'clock was uh, was was an achievement. However. We moved from physical safety. We, we eventually got physical safety and we focused on it. And that makes sense. But then through to emotional safety. And, and really, I don't know the boundaries on emotional safety. Um, and it, it, in fact, that's something we kind of come across a few times, I think, Ben, is that this idea of boundaries in some of these areas when we talk about woke, but the same in sort of emotional safety. How far do you go? Where do you stop? Where do you stop and say, oh, we're all emotionally safe now. So we don't need to worry anymore. no. We expand the boundary, we expand the boundary, we expand the boundary. Um, and what started out as, you know, a, a video of puppies has now turned into thou shalt not watch P- Peter Pan in case you upset um, the children or, or, or one child or whatever it might be. Um, and and so or, or indeed adults have 
18, 19, 20 years old. Adults who should be absolutely waiting to have university poured into them. Um, I was a mathematician at university, and I, sh- I, I would have liked a trigger warning between before our group theory lectures um, because <laughs> they were utterly <laughs> bewildering. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't and, and i talked to the lawyers and i talked to the historians and i you know I, I even we mathematicians occasionally interact with other people and they had no such oh. trick of words. I, did, I never sat next to a medic at dinner ben that was something um, you know, that you, we all decided you, you, we were you, never going to do in the last 40 minutes you've done chemistry to me and now you're trying to do maths to me uh i'm <laughs> i'm a historian by biology. training i've had enough i've had enough We've got to move on. We've got to move on. What's next? Well, it, it's this. It's this recurring theme of. of um, we've talked about the similarities between woke and a, and a religious movement, um, but I just wanted to bring us back to um, a, a clip from um, Piers Morgan's show that's been circulating on social media, in which he interviewed um, Professor Richard Dawkins, one of the the four horsemen of new atheism in the in the noughties, um, absolutely strident uncompromising critic of uh, organized religion um of uh, islamism and all the rest of it um so if you if you were alive at all in the noughties it would have been impossible to uh, have missed richard dawkins um and his work and the work of christopher hitchens and sam harris and so on um particularly if you were growing up in that 9-11 generation so that, that you know this this was the stuff of the uh philosophy and religious studies debates that i had at school so i think p- perhaps particularly for my generation it was very formative um but he was interviewed by pierce morgan um and he was put in a position where he obviously just felt completely uncomfortable and declined to answer questions about Salman Rushdie, about uh, what happened to him, uh, about the Islamist threat to uh, our way of life, to freedom of speech and all the rest of it. Um, And I thought, what a terrible indictment it it is of where we've got to as a society that even Richard Dawkins doesn't feel able to have that type of conversation. And I would say in his defence personally that, um, you know, obviously he's... um, I think he's in his 80s now, and I think it's not reasonable to expect that kind of um, uncompromising uh, moral leadership, if you like, um, from from Professor Dawkins now. But isn't it just desperately sad that even he doesn't feel able to engage in that discussion? It's a, it, it's a very depressing clip to watch i think to see pierce morgan you're challenging him on on this exact issue as well and and uh, and professor richard dawkins saying no 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 i don't want to speak about it and it really is some I, I agree with you ben that i wouldn't blame him you know at this stage if you look at what's happened if you look at what's happened with the batley teacher if you look at what's happened with quran gate if you look at what's happened post charlie hebdo if you look at what's happened to salman rushdie any individual at this stage will turn around and say, well, who's going to stand up for me? If I do have something terrible happen to me, I'm just going to have something terrible happen to me and then nothing will change. So you know what? As an individual um, living with these de facto blasphemy laws, why would I? Why would I do it? And, And that's now affecting the bravest amongst us which is utterly depressing. And it's one of those problems where uh, 
a problem is putting it mildly, that affect all of society, but the individual cost, as you just said, to the Batley teacher or to teachers in France who've been murdered in gruesome ways. Um, and as you said, society then doesn't pick up the baton in the way that it, it used to. So after Charlie Hebdo, um, of course, there were those huge demonstrations um, and there was a feeling that seemed at the time, perhaps this is naive of me, but it seemed quite sincere expression of yeah. solidarity. Just mm-hmm. um, with Charlie. And, uh, yeah, and, and of commitment to uh, to freedom of speech, even in cases where um, some Muslims deem that to be blasphemous, and indeed particularly in those cases. No, I was just going to say, I remember the Salman Rushdie fatwa, uh, and yeah. I remember the satanic verses. Obviously, that was all about the satanic verses. Um, we all went out and bought a copy. Everyone. We all went out and bought Now, none of us read it. I tried to read it, and I didn't understand it. <laughs> There's a big, there's a giant parachute jump at the beginning, and 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 apparently that's the bit that's that's not not you know that everyone's worried about. I, I didn't understand it, but I did have a bit of a go at it. Uh, but we used it as a doorstop for the next few years. Uh, but we all went out and bought it because we all realised it was important. And I, I think now we we've th- those lessons have been completely forgotten. And indeed, of course, we've gone now the other way where the is Islamic blasphemy norms are completely internalized as we've seen in Wakefield recently by the British yeah. state, by all of us, by uh, the, the, police, by the police, certainly by schools, um, all the rest of it. And that there was a, a little uh, sort of Twitter spat, I think that summed up the extent of this, um, this decay. Um, Douglas Murray had tweeted, it's only a cartoon mate, calm down. And he, one of the responses to this was, um, I think a sort of TV contributor, um, who, uh, Bushra Sheikh, I think her name is. And she'd replied saying, he'd never say this with his chest in Bradford. Never. And then a laughing emoji. And of mm. course, the bit that she hasn't written is the implicit, inescapable threat yeah. that follows those words. There's a reason why someone would be deeply unwise to go to Bradford showing a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad. It's completely bloody obvious why that would be a, a bad <laughs> idea if you valued your personal safety. And so, it, it, the, the, but she obviously, and many others, one fears, um, didn't see any problem at all in using mm. that threat of violence because it, it is completely implicit in what, in what she's saying. Um, and we were talking last week yeah. about the increasing sort of radicalization and, and militancy of the, of the trans movement. Um, whereas once it was content just to get you kicked out of your job and so you couldn't pay your mortgage or whatever. Um, b- but increasingly, uh, particularly women are, are being attacked or mobbed or uh, having tomato soup thrown over them um, and all the, all the rest of it. And, mm-hmm. and, um, there does seem to be an increase in militancy. And I said last week that it's like they're copying the most successful anti-free speech movement yeah. of recent history, Islamism. Um, and the parallels only seem to be be, be starker um, each week, I'm afraid. Whichever way you cut it, Ben, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we've had this aphorism or mantra that you words are violence. However, the reality is words are not violence. Violence is violence. Um, yeah. and what's happening is that the words of violence crew, whether that's on, you know, as you say, Islamism or whether that is the trans rights activists and what we saw last week, 
for them it's oh, w- words of violence and um and and you can see it it's a faux reaction because they're actually just living their lives quite comfortably um for, to you know as far as all evidence we can see what who's not living their lives comfortably it's people like the batley teacher it's people like posey yeah. parker who are being attacked because and the re- why why is there that difference because violence is violence you know yeah. when you actually have real violence lives are really destroyed um and 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 this distinction has been blurred and it's been blurred for such a long time that we don't have the the civic intuition anymore to see it for what it is yeah. and uh yeah it, it it's utterly uh, we always try and be a bit um optimistic don't we uh don't we, we do. ben but on this particular topic i'm struggling to find the the glimmer it it's it, it is hard i mean i would say if you're if you're utterly despairing at, at this point um the free speech union is is trying to take action wherever it can to kick the british state into doing the right thing so as one example of what we've done just in the last few weeks with the Wakefield Gate case and and the 14-year-old autistic people um, who'd likely scuffed a copy of the Quran at school. Um, and that then, of course, was followed by the now infamous uh, blasphemy trial, as it appeared, held in a mosque with his mm. mother, um, sat alongside the police and the headteacher, all looking terribly contrite and, and afraid of the consequences. Um, that mosque is a registered charity and the Free Speech Union has written to the Charity Commission um, because the the mosque's one of its charitable objects, the reason it's registered, is for the promotion of religious harmony. And yet here it is holding a, a de facto blasphemy trial. Um, and the imam had made various other quite unsavoury comments in the past that have since been reported. So the Charity Commission is now investigating because we've written this letter saying that that you know he can he can have whatever views he wants to have within the law about respecting the Quran and about his his religious beliefs and all the rest of it. He can be as conservative as he wants to be, but he cannot intimidate other people yeah. into adhering his his views. Um, and so, that, and that shows that there's there are ways of pushing back, doesn't it? That shows there are ways. Yes, of pushing there are. Back. There are, yeah. and we are we are doing that. Um, and there have been other cases, um, particularly uh, with issues where Islamic blasphemy laws are being imposed, where we are pushing back and, as I said, kicking the state into trying to take some action, yeah. uh, with some success. But it's a long fight. I mean, it, it would be foolish, I think, to be um, complete. You know, to try and put some sort of positive spin on this. Um, but I think we can truthfully say that 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 we're doing everything we possibly can, and with some results as well, which is good. Uh, so the Free Speech Union is hosting event to discuss all of these issues, including the um, the troubling comparisons between woke speech codes and blasphemy uh, at an event on the 10th of May. Uh, I'll be speaking on that panel, as will Emma Webb of the Common Sense Society, Dr. Rakib Essan, and Stephen Evans of the National Secular Society. And that was a group that had, among other things, campaigned, uh, I think for the best part of a century, for the abolition of blasphemy laws um, that was finally achieved towards the end of the Labour government, I think in 2008, um, only for those laws to be uh, resurrected zombie-like um, in the way we've just described. Um, and one of the themes I, I'm quite keen to talk about at that event um, is the way in which the the West's ability to resist Islamist demands for blasphemy laws has been hobbled by the fact that we have imposed test act-like 
restrictions on people in workplaces and, and have, have got to the point where you have to embrace certain views about race or trans or whatever. Um, otherwise, you'd be in a lot of trouble. And I think that's completely hobbled our, our ability to, to resist blasphemy. So that's one of the themes I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to pick up at that event. And it's online and in person uh, for FSU members. So it's it's a good reason to join the FSU as well. Um, but there's a, the opportunity to be there in person. It's in London, if I think. And, and if you apply for a ticket, then uh, you'll find out the venue. So please join us. We are very active in fighting back uh, to defend free speech, however and wherever we can. I think that'll be a great event. Uh, so it might be the first one you come to if you're if you're a new member or watch online. And hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you.